Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Did she mention seeing anyone who was sick? Anyone on a plane at the airport? No, she said she was jet-lagged. That's a clip from the 2011 movie, Contagion. The average person touches their face three to five times every waking minute. In between, we're touching doorknobs, water fountains, and each other. Maybe you recognized Kate Winslet's voice. She plays an epidemiologist working to contain the deadly virus at the center of the movie. It's fiction, of course, but people like Winslet's character, virus hunters, essentially, do exist in real life. And today, we'll talk to one who's been tracking down the origins of the coronavirus. We're looking for what the next pathogen could be, this sort of disease X idea. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent, and this is Coronavirus, Fact versus Fiction. Dr. Peter Daszak is the president of the EcoHealth Alliance. He helps predict and manage viral outbreaks, and he's with me in the studio. Dr. Daszak, let's start at the beginning. Where did the coronavirus come from? It probably came from southwest China, from bat caves. It probably came from a rhinolophus horseshoe bat. And we know that because all of the nearest relatives are from those animals, from that region. We've, we've found hundreds of these viruses, including the closest relative, 96% similar. I've been uh, reporting on this for some time, and I, and I keep saying this is a novel coronavirus. Mm. But really, it means that it's a novel coronavirus in humans. Yeah, Correct? exactly right. It's yeah. been in bats and in the animal population for some time. Probably thousands, tens of thousands, millions of years. Is that right? Well, we go back to the same caves. We find the same viruses. They're actually quite stable in the animal population. They're natural host. It's not to their advantage to kill that host. Bats don't seem to get sick. The virus doesn't seem to be evolving much in the bat. When it gets into people, and if it's able to take off, then we worry about it evolving within humans and becoming more lethal or more virulent. It doesn't want to kill its host. No. It's, I mean, if it kills all its hosts, it's got nowhere to go. They depend on the host for survival. Does that same principle apply then when it gets into humans? No, because we aren't the natural host. It's irrelevant to the virus. I mean, we're just a, a, an accident of nature. Um, so... The virus doesn't mind. You know, viruses don't have thought, but it, it, it doesn't really matter to, the, to a viral survival whether it starts to kill humans or not. But it really matters that the original natural host in bats survives and that the virus can replicate and, and transmit. I want to make sure I understand this jump of, of pathogens from animals to humans. With this particular novel, coronavirus, uh, the, all the initial reports were about this animal market in Wuhan. Uh, many of the patients that were first diagnosed, they said initially had some contact with this animal market. Is that likely where that jump happened then? Well, we don't know for sure. I mean, I don't think bats would have been there at this market at this time of year. Um, we know that the nearest relative to that virus is in Yunnan province, probably a thousand miles away. Um, 
So it may be something else happened. Maybe a bat infected animals on a farm and the farmer went to market or maybe bat infected a person who then went to that place. For sure, that wet market was part of this outbreak and allowed it to spread and amplified the source. How worried are you about this particular novel coronavirus? Yeah, this is not a good virus for sure. I mean, it We thought at first when we heard about this on New Year's Eve that this was going to be another SARS-like event. You know, a few thousand people get infected and then the virus goes away. But clearly, it's better able at getting around, whether that's because we now have a much better travel network, people are moving around more. You know, SARS took two to three months to get out of China. This virus took two weeks. The next virus might take two days. So it it certainly is a, a worrying virus, but I don't think it's the worst case scenario. There are other viruses out there, potentially, that will have a higher mortality rate, will be better able at spreading uh, that could be much worse. I mean, this virus doesn't get into children in a big way, for instance. Uh, that could be quite serious. You saw the movie uh, Contagion? I've seen enough of the movie to know all about it. It's, it's what we do every day. You, you probably missed my little cameo in no, it. No, I've just seen it. How accurate was it? Just because a lot of people are maybe watching movies like this now. Well, you know, it, it's a little bit um, on the doom and gloom side, but... I think it's pretty accurate. You know, what we need to learn from that movie is that little bit at the end that says, where did this come from? And it shows clearly um, bulldozers cutting down trees near a pig farm. The bats fly out, they infect pigs, and then it goes through the restaurant food chain. That is happening every day around the planet. Let's look at that and think about how we change that. So I wonder if you can just talk me through what what you do specifically when you get into the field to sort of arrive at some of these conclusions? So we're looking for what the next pathogen could be, this sort of disease X idea. And what we do is we look at, you know, which key wildlife carry viruses that could emerge in people. So we go to the places they live, we go and catch them, we anesthetize them or put them in, uh, you know, in, in um, bags and keep them to one side. Then we sample them. We take high-quality samples, blood samples, mouth swabs, fecal samples, get them into really good labs and look for new viruses. And we do this with the expectation that some of those viruses could infect us. So we're wearing full, um, you know, Tyvek suits, masks and gloves. And we're often in places where there are tourists and local people. So our first step is to talk to them and explain what we're doing first. Yeah, I'm sure it yeah. might freak people out otherwise. It's it's pretty odd looking when the guys in white suits turn up with masks. So we need to, you know, talk to the local communities, often a, a local uh, leader and say, is it okay to come and work on your land and do this work? And we're trying to improve your health. So you find all sorts of different pathogens, I imagine, in these animals. How do you know which one could potentially be problematic for humans? Yeah, good question. It's not easy. I mean, so we found maybe 500 coronaviruses from bats in China. What we do is we look at, first of all, how closely related are they to known pathogens like SARS? And if we find that they're really close, we then look at the specific genes, the proteins on the surface of the cell where they bind to human cells. Does it look like those proteins can actually attach to human cells and allow the virus in? And if that's possible, then we know that's a high-risk group. And then we try and work in the lab to understand would it cause disease? And there are some animal models you can use that, that sort of give you a rough estimate of what SARS would do. If this causes SARS, it's a real risk. Then we do the final test, which is, can we actually treat that virus? So if our vaccines against SARS work against a new one, then we know we're in good shape. We can avoid the risk. What do you think 
is likely to happen with this particular outbreak. And I'll just preface by saying with SARS, if I remember correctly, November of 2002 roughly is when some of the first cases were diagnosed. It peaked sort of in March or April of 2003, and then the tail end of it was sort of in the summer of, of 2003. This is a coronavirus as well. Do you think it might have a similar sort of pattern? Well, we can only hope. But I think what we've got to do is look at China. I mean, already what we're seeing in China is after a really aggressive quarantine travel ban um, rules and regulations, they've been able to reduce the rate of new cases. And we can see that that's plateauing. It's the beginning of hopefully control of an outbreak. Um, If we think about the US, we're just at the beginning of an outbreak ramping up here. If we can aggressively control it, we're going to need to do some things that are pretty archaic in terms of closing sporting events and, you know, travel bans and reducing the risk. If we can do those things, maybe it will take a few months to begin to control this outbreak. But I also worry a little bit, you know, we've not heard much from countries in sub-Saharan Africa, Latin America, India, Indonesia, countries with huge populations. And there is evidence of a few cases and they're not as uh, as rich as other countries, so they can't afford the sort of measures that, that other countries are going to do. Maybe they'll become um, areas where this virus really takes hold and is really hard to eradicate. When we forecast to the future based on what you're seeing in these animal populations and these these jumps from animals to humans, is there something that we should be doing as a as a global society to try and stop this or, or at least slow it down? Well, you know... I'm optimistic about this. I think that in 50 years, we'll look back on this age and say, yeah, we were in the pandemic era, but we dealt with it. I mean, first of all, these things go beyond country borders. So we've got to work together internationally to deal with them. Um, Secondly, you know, if they're caused by activities that we're doing around the world, let's look at those activities in great detail and protect. I mean, if, we, if we're building a building in an earthquake zone, we make sure it's got the right type of foundation so it doesn't topple. But if we put a pig farm in the middle of the tropics with these bats flying around, we, we don't do the same thing. We don't build a surveillance platform around that to look for the potential of viruses. We're not working with wildlife traders and people who eat wildlife to test them to see if we can catch these viruses right at the beginning. Simple things like that need to be done at a global scale. If you had to predict where this goes, SARS sort of died yeah. out, so to speak, in, in eight, nine months. H1N1 infected 60 million people by the end of the first year. Yeah. Where do you think this goes? Well, I, I think this virus is good. certainly going to be here for the rest of this year. It's probably going to be here for at least a couple of years. And there's a high likelihood it will become one of those circulating long-term human pathogens. Many of the other viruses we know well, like measles, began as animal viruses, got into humans, and never left. So uh, hopefully we'll be quick to develop vaccines and drugs, and we'll get used to this, and we'll deal with it. The news lately has all been about the numbers, how many people infected, how many people have died, trying to come up with these fatality ratios, which we hear anything from 2 to 3%. When you hear all these numbers with your background, what do you think? Do you pay much attention to them? Do you think that they're just all going to change? How do, how do you evaluate them? Well, be honest, Sanjay, it's kind of strange. You know, we, we look at these outbreaks as scientists, so we're very objective. But with this outbreak, it's here, you know, it's, it's in my neighborhood, and those numbers become very real very quickly. Um, I, I look at the mortality rate as, I think, you know, the estimate of 
anything from 2 to 3% is probably fairly accurate. It may be less as we find there are more cases out there. Um, but that's very high relative to what we're used to. We're used to seasonal flu with 0.1%. That's 20 to 30 times higher. That's significant. We're going to know people eventually who got infected. We're going to have friends or family members who died. And I think that really will bring it home to a lot of us about how serious this disease is. Um, you know, between outbreaks, we forget the, the interest in developing vaccines, finding out where the next ones are going to come from disappears. I think that's the problem. We don't treat pandemics in a true public health way. You know, if I go to the doctor and say, um, you know, I've got diabetes and hyperlipidemia, um, what are you going to do? He doesn't say, okay, very good. Go, go back home, eat cheeseburgers, and when you have a heart attack, we'll give you a pill. What he says is exercise, diet, and testing and avoid the heart attack. With pandemics, we go home and wait, and that's the mistake. So that's a lot to process. But while you may not want to think about coronavirus day in and day out, it's good to know people like Dr. Dashek are. We'll be back tomorrow. Thanks for listening. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.